In verse 17 of the 20th chapter, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember that the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Aaron, do I need to use this mic? Great. Well, you guys, there are a couple of things that we miss not being together. One of those Tim has provided today, which is harmony and singing. It's so great to have Tim join Nathan. I know that made Nathan happy. One of the other things that we miss is the end of our service when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And I want you to know uh, that we can't wait to celebrate that with you all again. We are going to hold off until we're able to meet in person God promises that he meets us through the supper. But that's not the only place that he meets us. Extraordinarily, um, in the real sense of that word, 
He meets us in so many ways. But ordinarily, he meets us as we bow our hearts to pray. And I want to encourage you, just for a minute, even if you're at home, I know it's weird to pray with a screen right in front of you, but go ahead and close your eyes. And let's join our voices together and trust that the Holy Spirit is uniting us as we pray to God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as a church, not in person, but present. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you have reminded us that you have sent your Holy Spirit to us. Jesus, you're the one that said it would be better if you left the earth so that you would send the Holy Spirit who would dwell in each of our hearts. Holy Spirit, you are the one who is sent from the Father and from the Son, as our confession teaches us. You are the one who unites our hearts together, and we're asking you to do something extraordinary. Though, in your mode of operation, ordinary. Would you please join our hearts together as we pray? Would you give us an appreciation of what it means that we are the church of God? Father, send your spirit to us so that your word would take root in our lives. Father, you know that we are exhausted Father, we know that there are many of our friends who are joining us now along with us whose patience is exhausted. Father, we know that you have called some of us to great sacrifice during this time. And we pray for the women and the men who are serving as first responders and caregivers. And Father, in the midst of fear and anxiety and exhaustion, we pray that you would be present with them. And Father, even now, through this medium of the internet, would you, Holy Spirit, take your word and plant it deep in their hearts and deep into our hearts that we might be encouraged by your word. Even in this passage, Father, it says that the word of your grace is able to build us up and to give us the inheritance of all those who are being changed by you, Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would do that for us even now. Father, I pray that you would give us the ability to pay attention for a few minutes and that you would use your word, as Jeff prayed earlier, to lead us to worship. Father, I pray for the women and the men and the girls and the boys who regularly attend this church that you would allow them to worship you, that they would be amazed at your love, especially your love for the church. And Father, we ask that you would do the work in us which would be pleasing in your sight. Father, thank you for your care for us even during this season. Father, please convince those women and men who have yet to put faith in you that you love the world and you sent Jesus. It's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. Well, listen, we have turned to Acts. We are in the 20th chapter. 
And we're not going to go chapter by chapter necessarily as Luke and I continue to preach through this month of April and May. Um, But we are going to get to the end of Acts. And this section is a unique section. It's a section and it's the only section in all uh, all in the book of Acts where Paul speaks to Christians. And so it's interesting for us to pay attention. And I want to say that there's nothing like the experience of living in a pandemic to make us consider the value of leadership, is there? Our country, which is founded on representative leadership, uh, and we depend on those women and men to make decisions for our well-being. And for those women and men to be the face of our country toward a watching world. Our sense of security in the present and our confidence in the future is uniquely tied to our leaders. Just look at the stock market if you doubt that in any way. And the question could be asked, where does this reality come from? I was taught as a young boy that the governance structure of the United States was actually modeled after Presbyterianism meaning that our country's government was modeled after representative leadership of two types of leaders elected by the people to guide and direct our corporate life. I'm not prepared to defend this claim fully today. It is beyond the scope of our passage, but our passage today definitely supports the deep reality that all of us, whether you're part of the church or not, All of us sense that our leaders are instrumental in our sense of security in the present and confidence in the future. And our passage speaks directly to why this is true. This is an interesting speech. As I told you before, it's Paul's only speech to Christians in the book of Acts. And it's interesting that this speech deals with leadership. In fact, it's spoken to leaders, to the elders of the church of Ephesus is what we read in verse 17. At this point, you might be thinking, and those of you who aren't Aaron and Jeff in this room might be thinking, yes, finally, a sermon that I don't have to listen to. Good luck, Dan. Good luck, Aaron. Good luck, Jeff. Good luck, Bradley. But wait a minute. I want to say that current events have taught us that if we admit that leadership has everything to do with our sense of personal security, present security, and future confidence in our country, in our shared lives together, might the church be similar? I would say that in our short life together, as Christ the King Church Newton, we've already come to realize that we are all in this together. At least I hope you realize that with me, that we're in this together. We've come to realize that if Christ the King Church Newton falls apart, our lives would be dramatically affected. And all the more so if you think about the capital C church, meaning the church is a global identity. Do you have any reason to be more or less confident and secure in the church as compared to the country in which you live, why? Why not? Why might you consider putting your security and confidence in the church and its message of hope rather than in the political, in the social, in the humanly instituted structures of this world? This passage addresses that. 
Yes, I give you that Paul's main audience is to the elders of the church of Ephesians. And in turn, we could argue that it's to the elders of the church today. But as God's word, it speaks to all of us. And it calls us to consider both ourselves and the God who created us. In this short speech, Luke, who most likely heard it, if you read verse 1 of chapter 21, it says that when we had parted, as Luke writes, in this short speech that Luke recorded for Theophilus, Paul makes three points. First, he addresses the security and the confidence of the elders regarding his own ministry. And that ministry had likely come under attack while Paul had traveled to Macedonia and Achaia before he came back through Ephesians. He was gone for nearly a year. If you want another example of that, read the book written to the church in Galatia, and Paul specifically speaks of those who are attacking him. First, he addresses the security and the confidence of the elders regarding his own ministry. Secondly, he makes it clear that the role of caring for the church, which is absolutely necessary, is no longer his role, but the role of the elders in Ephesus. And then finally, he reminds them that ultimately, the costly care for the church is actually rooted in the very nature of God himself. It's this third point that sets the church apart from any other human institution. And why we should think about the church differently, not just elders, but parishioners of the church as well. In fact, it's Paul's claim that the church isn't a human institution, but rather a divine institution established and sustained by God, which he intends to bless, through which he intends to bless the world. Let's look at this together. Let me set the scene for you very quickly. Uh, verse 17 tells us that it is now uh, that Paul is pulled into the port of, um, of Miletus. This port is probably some 30 miles south of the city of Ephesus. Paul is on the end of his third missionary journey and he's headed back to Jerusalem. From there, he's going to be arrested. And through a series of events that we'll see in the next few speeches of Paul, he's going to make his way all the way to Rome where he is going to give testimony to the gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ, even in Rome, the center of the Roman Empire. Paul is there in Miletus and he has called the elders of the church of Ephesus to come down to him. Verses 18 through 24, Paul starts by asking these elders to remember what they experienced about Paul's ministry. He's either asking them to compare what they saw in his life with what they're seeing in those who are claiming to have superiority over Paul, or he's simply laying the groundwork for his own charge to them. Either way, what shocks us is that Paul turns their attention toward himself. The boldness of what Paul does here is arresting. He says, in essence, let my life stand before you. Consider what you saw. And he emphasizes three aspects of his time spent with them, his character toward them, the theme of his teaching, and his life's commitment. Verse 18 and 19 says this, his character toward them. Look at it with me. It says that his character toward them was one of a servant. In fact, it's a slave to the Lord. 
It says that his character toward them was in all humility, even with tears. Paul was emotionally invested in the lives of the Ephesians. Elsewhere in his writings, he says that his tears are a sign of his love for them. Wherever Paul went, he was invested in, invested in the lives of his people with his own life so that he could even say to the church in Thessalonica that he was so affectionately desirous of them that he was willing and ready to share not only the gospel with them, but his life as well. Verses 20 and 21 don't focus on his character toward them as much as on his teaching to them, right? He said that he didn't shrink back from any of the hard topics, that when he was pressed by those who persecuted him, he pushed forward and the focus of his teaching was on repentance toward God and the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I heard this, it reminded me actually of Dan Allred. He loves to say that of repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, there are two sides of the same coin. The same theme Paul preached to the Jews and to the Greeks. Paul was able to say that I kept the main thing the main thing the sinfulness of human beings, and our needs, and our needs that are completely met in Jesus Christ. And finally, the third thing that he pointed at was his core commitment. Look at how he says it in verses 22 through 24. He says that he's going to Jerusalem and he's constrained by the Spirit to do so and he doesn't know what's going to happen to him except that the Holy Spirit has told him he's going to suffer and be imprisoned. Paul says that his core commitment is not about his own life or even his own well-being. Paul says, it's not even that my life is precious to me. But, Paul says, his core commitment is to faithfully finish the ministry that had been given to him. And that ministry, as you remember from Acts 9, was given to him by Jesus on the road to Damascus to testify to the end of the gospel of God's grace. That gospel which says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. What's important to note in this is that none of the elders who listened to Paul denied a thing that he said. Look, remember, Luke is not in any way one to shy away from recording controversy within the church. You remember Paul and Barnabas. You remember Paul and Peter uh, in Jerusalem. Even the failures of church leadership, Luke is willing to write those. And Paul's statements here are accepted as true. It truly is remarkable. Paul was likely asking them to compare his life in ministry to those who were speaking against him. But for those of us here, it brings up two transitional questions that we have to ask. For Aaron and Jeff and Dan and myself... I think the question that has to be asked and that stops us is, could anyone say these things about our lives, our teaching, our commitment? Paul was able to say to others, Timothy included, and the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Are we leading similar lives? Are we leading in a similar manner? For those who are elders in God's church, passages like this are for us a big wake-up call. A reality check, really. But as church members, this passage is for you as well. And I want to ask you this question. Do you witness these traits in the character and the ministry 
of the lives of your elders. If you do, you should encourage them. You should certainly be praying for them. And if you don't, I want you to know that you are called to humbly confront your elders. Because this is the type of leadership that Paul says is necessary for the church. Why does he say that it's necessary? That takes us to verses 35 through 40, through 30, 25 through 31. Paul transitions to this next idea. Right then, he has already told them, as we saw, that Paul wants them to know that the grounds for his charge can be seen in his life. But now he goes on to tell them that the caring for, or strictly speaking, the shepherding of the church is no longer Paul's responsibility, but theirs. And he starts by proclaiming that he's finished. Then he recognizes that God has replaced him with them, and he explains why leadership in the church is necessary. Following in the footsteps of the great leaders of God's people like Moses, Samuel, and Ezekiel, Paul calls the elders of God's people together and declares to them that he's been a faithful watchman. That's what's going on in verse 26 there when he says, look, I'm innocent of your blood. Paul is actually using the language of Ezekiel and he is actually saying, look, I haven't withheld anything from you. Everything that God has given me to teach you, I have taught it to you and I am innocent of your blood. There, Ezekiel writes that if those who are watchmen of God's people don't communicate everything that God has told them to communicate, if people die, the watchmen are responsible. But Paul is essentially saying, look, I've communicated everything. I'm innocent of the blood of all. He says, I have done my job. It struck me that he is a man after Coach Belichick's own heart in that regard. He's done his job, what he's been called to do. What's interesting to note as Paul takes these images from the Old Testament is that God has always used human leadership since the time of Moses, elders and watchmen as described by the prophets to lead God's people. God's people are always a dependent people, people who need to be led. The next thing that Paul says in verse 28 is he calls the elders to take over. He says, I'm done now it's yours, is what he says. Knowing that Paul is speaking to elders, remember we saw that in verse 17, Paul employs in this one verse all the terms that the Old Testament uses to describe the leaders of God's people. Elders, overseers, or watchmen, and shepherds. He actually declares in that verse 28 that none other than the Holy Spirit appointed them as overseers of the church. And as such, they are, pay, they are to pay attention to themselves and to the flock, the flock that he calls God's church. Recognize in verse 28, the divine establishment of this arrangement of God's flock and his leaders, overseers appointed by the Holy Spirit to shepherd the church, the new assembly, the church that is God's. It says that the church of God, which he obtained by the blood of his own son, Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the entire Trinity is at work here? The investment requires their careful attention. And lastly, Paul explains why that investment or that attention is necessary. Paul tells them in verse 28, pay attention. 
And he says that their attention is twofold, one on themselves and also on the flock. And that their attention, and then in verse 31, also their alertness is necessary because there's a twofold threat that is real. Wolves, the enemy of sheep, are sure to come. This is a vivid descriptor. No doubt, anytime you hear about a wolf present, but it's used in the Old Testament specifically, not only of the enemies of God's people, but also of the wicked leaders of God's people who seek their own gain. Jesus employs the term to describe the false prophets who come disguised as sheep, but who can be identified by the results their lives produce. Jesus says that these wolves have no regard for the sheep. But he also says that there's another threat. The other threat is actually from within. Leaders who draw away sheep to themselves, he says there in verse 29, by misleading people in order that they, the leaders themselves, would be made much of. And what we learn is that these leaders cause the church to lose their first love. In fact, if you read Revelation 2, the letter to the church in Ephesus, we see that they were faithful against false prophets. But what we see is that they are told that they have lost their first love. Their love of the gospel and of Jesus has been sidetracked and drawn away, deceived by another love, teaching that had turned people away from Jesus. What is the takeaway for this? Why does this matter for us? Well, again, for elders... Do we value the church the way that God does? Divinely established by the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do we believe that the threat is real in the church? And are we self-aware of our own potential to use the church to build ourselves up to the church? Are you aware that you are part of something that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is committed to. One way of knowing this is by witnessing the lives of elders poured out for your good. Do you believe that it sounds possible for Christ the King Church to be distracted from the message of the gospel being one of our core messages? But that's what Paul warns the church of here. And then in the last section... This last part, Paul in verses 32 through 35 finally reveals from where his confidence comes. We see here now why Paul can be so bold in asking the letters and the elders in part one to, to consider his way of life and in part two to investing so much in the elders to whom he is giving control of the church of Ephesus in part two, mere men who are sure to fail. Paul commends these elders to God and to the word of his grace. He puts these elders before God's watchful eye and he puts the word of grace before the elders' eyes. Look at how he does that here in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. When Paul Paul commends these elders to God, 
he puts them before God and he says, God, watch over them. You see, God is referred to in the Old Testament as an overseer as well. It's rooted in the Old Testament. In Job, he's called the one who oversees the lives of men. Some have conceived this in a deistic way. Do you know what that means? The idea that God is a great watchman and he has created the world and he creates it in such intricacy and then he sets it on to start and then he stands back and he watches from a distance. In that idea, he is as indifferent as the cliff which overlooks Franconia Notch called the watcher. But the Bible doesn't support that idea in any way. Psalm 23 refers to Yahweh as another language of the elders, a shepherd who leads his people. Paul commends these elders before God. And he also commends them to the word of his grace. That word that God has given us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God that is defined by Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. It is impossible because of Jesus to conceive of God as indifferent. It's actually Jesus who calls himself the good shepherd, who lays down his life for his sheep. Unlike the hired hand, he says, who sees the wolf coming and flees, Jesus rather gives his very life for us. We who are his church, God's church, that God obtained, Paul says, by Jesus' blood. The apostle Peter goes on to call Jesus the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Paul is bold in his claim of his faithfulness, and he's also bold in investing leadership to the elders because he knows that any heavy lifting that he, Paul, or the Ephesian elders or elders today do is simply because of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, girding us up, sustaining us, and building us up by his own self-donation. The word of his grace that is powerful to build us up and give us the inheritance, the working of the Holy Spirit, which Paul references in Ephesians 1. Paul's giving of his life away isn't something that came from Paul, but it's actually rooted in Jesus' self-giving of the cross. Listen, the root of the church that makes it different than any human institution is the divine self-donation. God gives himself for us to bring us into relationship with him. And because God has done this, Paul is able to consider his life not belonging to himself, but to Christ, as he writes to the Galatians, who loves him and gave himself for him. And this word, God's giving of his son for the church, is the truth that will sustain the elders of the church and get to give their lives away. Aaron, Jeff, Dan, we are called to give our lives away for God's church. And the only way that that is possible is to believe and to be anchored in the word of his grace that reminds us that he has given his life for us. 
And in turn, you, participants of the, uh, members of the church, in turn, you will be led to give your lives away. As Paul is able to say to the members of the Corinthian church and even to Timothy, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The church is different than any other human institution because it is actually a divine institution that is rooted in the self-donation of God. And this is why Paul emphasizes at the end of this passage, it is better to give than to receive. I was reading a book this week by Miroslav Volf. It's called Exclusion and Embrace. And he's a Croatian who survived uh, the war between Croatia and Serbia. Um, He says, and he believes this from a from a philosophical standpoint, that the only hope for for human forgiveness and community in this world is through the ethic of self-donation, giving of oneself away. And he says that that is best modeled in the cross. But he is quick to point out that only those whose lives are based on the reality of Christ's death for them will be the ones who have the inexhaustible source of self-giving. I've been thinking about the women who are pregnant in our congregation right now. I've been thinking about Rachel. I've been thinking about Megan King. I've been thinking about these moms who carry these babies and are giving everything to sustain them short of their own death. What is amazing about the church is that Jesus didn't stop at death. He actually gave his life for the church so that the church might be sustained, so the church might be established as God's church that he obtained by the blood of Jesus. This is the only speech in the book of Acts that is written to Christians, and it focuses on leadership. And the reason that it does is that because of the leadership of the church, we are to understand the God who established the church by the giving of his son. Listen, church, we need to hear this and we need to believe this because if anything, the pandemic has taught us that our hope cannot be in this world But our hope is actually in what Jesus is doing in his kingdom coming through the advancement of his church. This gives us a great way to live our lives and also to pray for a watching world. Please join me as I pray now.